Thank you for tuning in to Cobblestone Community Church today. We hope this message blesses you. If you need prayer for anything, please email us at prayer at cobblestonechurch.com. Now here's the message. The book of Judges. So remember, after Joshua led the tribes of Israel into the promised land, he called them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the commands of the Torah. And if they do this, they will show all the other nations what God is like. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua and basically tells the story of Israel's total failure. The book's name comes from the type of leaders Israel had in this period. Before they had any kings, the tribes were all governed by these judges. Now, don't think of a courtroom. These were regional political military leaders, more like a tribal chieftain. And you need to be warned, the book of Judges is very disturbing and violent. It tells the tragic tale of Israel's moral corruption, of its bad leadership, and basically how they become no different than the Canaanites. But this sad story is also meant to generate hope for the future. And you can see this in how the book's designed. There's a large introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure as they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. Then the large main section of the book has stories about the growing corruption of Israel's judges. And the progression here shows how Israel's leaders go from pretty good to okay to bad to worse. The concluding section is really disturbing and shows the corruption of the people of Israel as a whole. So let's dive in and we can explore each part a bit more. The opening section begins with the tribes of Israel in their territories in the Promised Land. And while Joshua defeated some key Canaanite towns, there was still a lot of land to be taken and lots of Canaanites living in those areas. And so chapter 1 gives a long list of Canaanite groups and towns that Israel just failed to drive out from the land. Now, remember, the whole point of driving out the Canaanites was to avoid their moral corruption and their way of worshiping the gods through child sacrifice. God had called Israel to be a holy people, and that does not happen. Chapter 2 describes how Israel just moved in alongside the Canaanites and adopted all their cultural and religious practices. And it's right here that the story stops. For nearly a whole chapter, the narrator gives us an overview of everything that's about to happen in the body of the book. This part of Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites, and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually Israel would sin again and it would all start over. This cycle provides the literary design and flow for the next main section of the book. It gets repeated for each of the six main judges whose stories are told here. Now, the stories of the first three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, they are epic adventures. They're also extremely bloody stories. Either the judge themselves or people who help the judge, they defeat their enemies and deliver the people of Israel. The stories about the next three judges are longer, and they focus in on the character flaws of the judges, which get increasingly worse. So Gideon, he begins pretty well. He's a coward of a man, but he eventually comes to trust that God can save Israel through him. And so he defeats a huge army of Midianites with only 300 men carrying torches and clay pots. But Gideon has a nasty temper, and he murders a bunch of fellow Israelites for not helping him in his battle. And then it all goes downhill from there. He makes an idol from the gold that he won in his battles. And then after he dies, all Israel worships the idol as a god, and the cycle begins again. The next main judge is Jephthah, who's something of a mafia thug living up in the hills. And when things get really bad for Israel, the elders come to him begging for his help. And Jephthah was a very effective leader. He won lots of battles against the Ammonites, but he was so unfamiliar with the God of Israel, he treats him like a Canaanite God. He vows to sacrifice his daughter if he wins the battle. This tragic story, it shows just how far Israel has fallen. They no longer know the character of their own God, which leads to murder and to false worship. The last judge, Samson, is by far the worst. His life began full of promise, but he has no regard for the God of Israel. He was promiscuous, violent, and arrogant. 
He did win brutally strategic victories over the Philistines, but only at the expense of his own integrity, and his life ends in a violent rush of mass murder. Now, a quick note here. You'll notice a repeated theme in the main section of the book, that at key moments, God's Spirit will empower each of these judges to accomplish these great acts of deliverance. Now, the fact that God uses these really screwed up people doesn't mean he endorses all or even any of their decisions. God is committed first and foremost to saving his people, but all he has to work with is these corrupt leaders. And so work with them, he does. This whole section is designed to show just how bad things have gotten. You can't even tell the Israelites and the Canaanites apart anymore. And that's just the leaders. The final section shows Israel as a whole hitting bottom. There are two tragic stories here, and they are not for the faint of heart. They're structured by this key line that gets repeated four times at the close of the book. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The first story is about an Israelite named Micah, who builds a private temple to an idol, and that gets plundered by a private army sent from the tribe of Dan. So they come and they steal everything, and then they go and burn down the peaceful city of Laish and murder all of its inhabitants. It's a horrifying story. When Israel forgets its God, might makes right. The final story of the book is even worse. It's a shocking tale of sexual abuse and violence, which all leads to Israel's first civil war. It's very disturbing. And that's the point. These stories are meant to serve as a warning. Israel's descent into self-destruction is a result of turning away from the God who loves them and saved them out of slavery in Egypt. And now Israel needs to be delivered again from themselves. The only glimmer of hope in this story is found in this repeated line in the last part of the book. It actually forms the last sentence of the story. Israel has no king. And so the stage is set for the following books to tell the origins of King David's family, the book of Ruth, and also the origins of kingship itself in Israel, the book of 1 Samuel. But the story of Judges has value as a tragedy. It's a sobering explanation of the human condition, and ultimately it points out the need for God's grace to send a king who will rescue his people. And that's the book of Judges. Are you ready for a chipper sermon? No, the book of Judges is rough. There's a lot of murder, a lot of bad stuff in there. And so we are people committed as a church to the word of God and walking through it for the next, we said two years, so we're about a year, year and a half still to go. And we're in the book of Judges this week and next week. So if you have a Bible, open to the book of Judges. Uh, we're going to spend some time looking at that cycle of, of the people of God, of kind of rejecting him and then God humbling them and then them crying out. And I believe that that is the lesson for this church today, that we would learn and even allow the Spirit of God to put a cry in us to the God that hears and always seems to save his people, however many times they reject him. And so be, before we begin, I want to welcome you. Uh, welcome to Cobblestone. My name's Andrew. This is kind of like the no student COVID version of Cobblestone. Uh, and so if you have friends or you even have family members that have been like, I don't know if I want to go to church with all the students here, a lot of them are gone. Not all of them. Thank you, students, for still being here with your students. But if you want to come, I'm talking to you on the internet, uh, you can definitely spread out more during the next couple months. There's people that I miss. I miss you all. Uh, and if you don't ever feel like comfortable being here uh, because of the mask, because of COVID, that's fine. We're going to keep live streaming, keep making it better but we're just kind of committed in these next few months of like kind of beckoning people back. Like we want to see you at least or just touch base. We love you. Uh, and as we get into judges today, I need, I need my notes. I don't even know where I left them. So I'll just do it from memory. This is going to go well. Um, the book of Judges, really, like I could preach the whole thing uh, in a sentence. When you forget who God is and what he's done, you end up walking away from him. And so it's really important that we don't forget who he is, like his character, his ways, what he's like, and we don't forget what he's done. And as we, we start, I just really feel like I, I want to stop for a second, number one, to find my notes, and number two, because I think it's important, so we can pray. And, and I don't really like transition prayers. What I mean is I don't believe in 30 seconds, like I'm going to pray just so we can transition. Uh, I actually want you as a whole 
to kind of turn your hearts towards the Lord with me and invite him to teach you. As I was reading this this week and in the coming weeks leading to this sermon, you ever think like you know the Bible? Maybe, maybe you do. I, I do sometimes, and then you start reading it and you start crying because it's like the Lord's speaking afresh. Like it happened to me over and over again as I was reading this of how many similarities there are between us and them and how there's these moments when God's people get serious about crying out and he hears them. And that's what I want to do. So if you would, would you turn your heart and your mind and your soul to the Lord? And so, Lord, I just slow down. Um, slow down long enough to invite you to be here. For all our hearts and our minds to turn to you. This is your word. You spoke it. And it's not a small thing. And so God, in this quiet moment, I would love that I, if I didn't even have to preach, that you would come right now, Holy Spirit, and stir up the hearts of your people. That Jesus, you would reign in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. You teach us whatever you want to teach us today. All week, Lord, I felt like it was, Father, would you give us your heart? Would you put a cry in our hearts, in our bellies, in our spirits that, that would be a cry to the living God? And as a people, as a body, we would cry out to you. We would call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Would you do that work today? Would you keep me from trying to push or pull, but by your spirit, would you push us and pull us into your will and your ways? Oh, Jesus, I love you. Amen. I found my notes. Judges 2. Let's start uh, right at the beginning of chapter 2. We're pretty much going to read all of chapter 2 today, and that's why I want you to have it open so you can kind of follow We'll stop every, like, chunk, uh, and, then, and then we'll keep going. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet, you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bochum. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. So I like to stop regularly while I'm reading and be like, what the heck is going on? Number one, where's Gilgal and where's Bochum? And that's why I'm like, your maps in the Bible, I know you don't live there, but they're important. And so Gilgal is the place where God first showed up. Right across from the Jordan was their first camp in Gilgal. So that's where jo or not Joseph, Joshua meets the angel of the Lord, commander of the Lord's armies outside the walls of Jericho. Now that same angel of the Lord shows up and speaks to the entire people. And he says some important things. Uh, but I love, number one, that he talks to them like a parent. Did you notice this? He's like, you disobeyed me. Why have you done this? You ever say that to your kids? Like, your kids, like, spill a whole gallon of milk. What have you done? Why did you do this? And I kind of love to look at God that way because I don't think it's like, it's not an emotional, it's not like the angel's just saying things. The angel of the Lord, once again, Usually in the Old Testament, when it says the angel of the Lord, you have a theophany, you have Jesus showing up, pre-incarnation, and he's speaking to the people. And he's going, why did you disobey? And he tells them something that's important for you and me. He tells them something key to the character of God. He says, I will never break my covenant with you. This is the nature and character of God. When God makes a covenant, he keeps it. When God says a thing, he does it. 
when we are faithless and we run out of faith and run away, he's still faithful. This is, this is like, wow, right? He says it right. I will never break my covenant with you, and you should have not broken yours with me, but you did. And now he tells them what's going to happen. These people's religions and their gods are going to be like thorns to you. They're going to stick to you. They're going to trip you. They're going to snare you. And he continues to tell them in verse 10 what's going to happen. After that, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, they died. Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served the Baal and the Asherah. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. No kidding, right? So once again, you see character of God in here. God promises in a covenant, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. You do this, I'll do that. It's a relational covenant, like marriage. They break their covenant, and because of that breaking of covenant and not doing what God told them to do to remove all the idols and remove all the other religions and the people of those religions, they are now snared. And what slowly starts to happen is it paints this picture is the old guys die. The old guys that knew what God had done they die away, and a generation raises up who doesn't know what God did. They don't remember Egypt. They don't remember the plagues. They don't remember the wonders of God. They don't remember the desert. They don't remember anything we've studied over the last months. And this is a different sermon, but this is why old guys, old ladies, it's really important to tell the younger generation what God's done. Remind them. Be like, you don't understand. I watched God move when we prayed when I was your age. I, I watched the glory of God. God saved me this way. Tell your kids, mom and dad, how God saved you. Tell them all the time. And don't make it like an eight-hour, like, sit-down lecture. Just be like, God's so good. He saves us. He hears us. If a generation comes after us that doesn't know what God is like or what he's done, you know whose fault it is? Ours. It means we've not taken the commands to open our mouths and tell what God has done seriously and faithfully. So tell. We, we don't do that well in an Americanized, Westernized church because we're so like, I have my seat and my bubble and I'll only sit in this seat. And you're like, what? If someone was sitting in the seat you usually sit in this morning, would you be like, you, <laughs> they neither they knew neither the Lord nor what he had done. And then you see, you begin to see that the Lord's anger was against them. Now, we don't like talking about God's anger, but do you know that there's things God likes and God doesn't like? Did you know that? So it's not, I know God loves you. Like, we love singing, God loves me. Do you know there's things that we do that I think God is like, ah! If you're a parent, once again, you, you realize you get angry sometimes. And I, I look at these normal, these what I call shadows of the reality of the kingdom of God, and I think marriage is a shadow of what God ultimately wants to do with the church, the bride of Christ. I think marriage, like marriage and then the kids that it produces in there, uh, fatherhood, motherhood are things that God shows me all the time. You don't have to be married, and you don't have to be a mother and dad to see these things, but they're things that God has done to kind of image to the world what he's like. And we get to call God Father, and God is angry at his kids here, right? His covenant people, to the point where he's not even like trying to help. He's actively against them. He's sending raiders to plunder them. He's sending things to intentionally humble them so that they might cry out to him. Now, does that mess with your theology at all? Does that bother you? And you continue in verse 16, and he begins to lay out what he's going to do. They were in great distress, obviously, because God seems to be standing against them. And in verse 16, 
Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of the groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to, to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. So before we start to apply this to us, let's do scripture work. It says, then the blank raised up, who raised up the judges? The Lord did. So the Lord makes the covenant and he keeps his side of it. The people make their covenant, they do not keep their side of it. The Lord is faithful and even doing what he told them he would do. And then in the midst of them being oppressed, God raises up because he's full of love and full of mercy and full of kindness and faithful to his covenant, judges. Now don't think guys in white wigs and black robes. That's not what we're talking about, guys with gavels. This is usually people that would actually warrior leaders. So God would raise up these leaders that would fight victories, fight bloody battles, stab people in the gut. Read it, it's in there. And we love these stories, but in the middle of it, you have why God did this. For the Lord relented because. It tells you why God did this. Because of the groaning under those who are oppressed who oppressed and afflicted them. So the people were just like, I don't know how you groan. That's how I groan. You ever been in a, a season of life where it just feels heavy? Where it just feels like you can't catch your breath? And it's just like it gets so, and you're just like, you get to a point where you're just exasperated and you might do one of these. <clears throat> That's God's people. They're groaning under this oppression that they created for themselves. And I think sometimes, some of us in this room even, I think we're groaning under the weight of sin and oppression and bad decisions that we created for ourselves, and God is eager to save his people. But there's one key thing that needs to happen. And before you understand that key, you need to understand that the, this, this cycle, this cycle of judges, it's the cycle of apostasy, the cycle of sin, uh, and I'm going to try to show it to you. It's not the greatest. I can't really shrink it down, but this is what it looks like. So you have the Israelites. Is it there? Yes, there it is. You could even print this out. So this happens. I just, this summarizes the book of Judges. We wouldn't have to read it anymore. This is what they do. Step one, they reject the Lord. They reject his promises. They reject something about God. They reject him and pick up Baals, Asherah. They set up worship to other gods. And so in that rejection, the Lord's anger happens. The Lord's heart breaks because he's like, you're my covenant people. I married you. I made promises to you. Why are you cheating on me? Why did you disobey me? I wanted life for you. And you sought for it other places. And so you see the anger of the Lord. And then the anger of the Lord turns into God sending people to oppress his people. Raiders, Canaanites, people that'll show, like break them down and humble them. And so in that oppression, that turns to, at the bottom there, they go, why are we so broken and oppressed? Oh, it's because we, we served other gods. And they repent, they turn, and they cry out to God. And usually in that culture, they're going to put on sackcloth, they're going to rip their clothes open, and they're going to sit down and weep and go, God, save us, we're sorry. And then God would rescue them by raising up a judge. Ehud, Shamgar, I just like Ehud's name. You say it with like, it's just fun. Shamgar, right? Great names. Name your kid that next. Deborah, Samson, all these little Sunday school stories are actual real life people that God raised up, put his spirit upon, and they did great works and deeds, but all of them had flaws. All of them had flaws. And so God, because he's hit God of his word, rescues his people and they return to the Lord. They return and they go, man, God is great. And then the judge would die. 
sometimes after eight years, sometimes after 20 years. But regardless of what timeline is, they would die and the people would return to their own vomit. They would return to the very things they were doing before that got them back in the situation. Anybody want to be like, yeah, been there? Do you have kids once again? Don't they just seem to like re-come re back around? You're like, how'd that work out for you the first time? It didn't. Let me try it again. This is human nature. And, it, and really, I don't really want to study human nature because I think all of us could relate to this. But I, in one real question, are we not these people? Are we not these people in Judges? We reject something that God has said to do or a way of the Lord or something he's invited us into, deep places with the Father because of Jesus. We reject that and we walk our own life. Or we don't reject it entirely. We, we give God our Sundays, but we don't really want him any other part of our days. And so we, in, in fact, reject him. And then God is angered. And you're like, no, he's always, no, anger. I'm a father, I have anger, but I always have love still. God is angry, and then God punishes, and then God brings an oppression to his people in the Old Testament, and I think God chastises, disciplines his sons. Don't you? Because the word says he does, that he would discipline us, that he would kind of prune us, and then we always have this moment where we're like, Lord, I'm lost, help me, save me. And then he does, and he gives you the job you need, or he comes through in a way that you wanted, or God redeems and saves and heals, and we're like, praise God. But we forget, and we come right back around. We're rescued, and we live in this little moment of freedom, and then we end up rejecting him again. We are those people. I am that person. And so in really quick, quick order, this is what I noticed. I went through the entire book of Judges. It all starts with a sentence in chapter 3, verse 7. You want to go to chapter 3, verse 7? Uh, this is what you hear on repeat. Almost every chapter, or at least every, every story of a judge, it starts with a statement very similar to this. Judges chapter 3, verse 7 says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherahs. Like, you hear that exact statement. And then they did evil in the eyes of the Lord again. And then again, they did evil. And then, then it's followed by repeatedly. I'm going to go really fast. You can just write down the references in chapter 3, verse 9. After they do evil in the eyes of the Lord. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer. Chapter 3, verse 15. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer. Chapter 4, verse 3, B, they cried to the Lord for help. Chapter 6, verse 6, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Chapter 10, verse 10, then the Israelites cried out to the Lord. On repeat, God answers this cry. Now, I think it would be wonderful, I think it would be beautiful if we now, as New, New Testament covenanted people, by the blood of Jesus, we've been brought into better promises than the ones they were in, that we could be a people that could short-circuit that, that route that we're on and learn to be a people that cries out. Now, before we talk about our crying out, I want you to see the character of God on display there. How patient is our God? How patient is God? You know, like how many times are his people basically going to spit in his face, get really oppressed by him because he's trying to humble them, he's trying to save them, and then they cry out, and then they promise, we'll never do it again. You ever heard those words? And then they do it again. How many times are you going to do that if it's you? It's on a human level. How many times is your spouse going to cheat on you, be like, I promise I'll never do it again? You come back into right relationship with them. You save them. You, you walk with them. And then they spit in your face again. How many times do you have in you? I got maybe two as a human male. Some of you were like, once? Not at all. I don't know how you're going to play that game. Cheat on me, you're out. But our God, who is like him? And this is what I want you to be in awe of, not the sin of the people, not your depravity, not my brokenness or my weakness, but the amazing mercy of God. 
that he, they would cry out, and he's faithful. And so it seems like the only prerequisite is humble yourself under the hand of the Lord. Don't be humble. Like pride, God opposes the proud. So humble yourself and cry out. Humble yourself, cry out. Humble yourself, cry out. So I, I, I like really dumb questions. How are we doing with humbling ourselves and crying out? Where's your cry at? Where's your fervency level? When, when did the people of God forget that everything we have and everything we are is owed to a God who's more faithful, full of mercy, and abounding in steadfast love? Or did you cry out once when you were 17 and then went, but I don't have to do that again? No, we must cry out. These are the days to cry out. And I think this is what the Spirit of God talked to me this week as I was the testimony of Scripture. The Old Testament testimony, the New Testament testimony is when God's people cry out in fervent, humble faith, God answers. The Old Testament, the whole thing. Why did God send Moses to rescue his people? Because they were bound and enslaved for 400 years and they groaned and they cried out to the Lord and their cries reached the Lord and he sent Moses. Why did Hannah get a child? We haven't read that part yet, but maybe you know that. Hannah's praying for a child because she's barren. And Lord, and she's whispering in the temple, give me a child, give me a child. And she does. In the New Testament, you have the blind man as Jesus walks by. And he goes, son of David! And you know what his disciples do? Shh! He's busy. And he yells all the louder. When did we stop crying out? When did we decide that we didn't need to? When did we decide that we could handle it? Why do we wait in most occasions? I, I picture prayer or crying out to God as like in case of bad news or oppression or bad circumstances, break glass to pray. Why wouldn't we cry out? You can break that whole cycle by not rejecting the Lord, number one, remembering and bringing to mind and declaring his word faithfully, living to the Lord, and then when you feel it, running right away. Don't go into the oppression. Don't go into the forgetting. Don't go into the dark period. Go straight into, God, help! Even when you look into the Old Testament further, like, one of my favorite examples is Acts chapter 4, and I don't have time to read the whole thing. I, I put it in there, but Peter and John, they get arrested for preaching the gospel, told don't talk about this Jesus anymore. So they go back and they, they tell the, the other believers who are praying and worshiping, and they tell them what they've been, what's happened to them, and they tell them uh, that, man, we, we're, we're in trouble, and this is what they do. They pray. Uh, on the release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, and this is important, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. So you can follow that stream through the New Testament. Every time trouble hits, what do God's people do in the New Testament? They pray. They joined their voices together and they cried out to the Lord. They said to the Lord, and they pray this prayer, and in God's response is then and now. God actually comes, and he shakes the place where they're meeting, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit again and in a fresh, and in a bold way, they go out to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus again. This is what we do. We cry out to God, because we don't have the ability. And so I just wonder, I started wondering this week, what silences that cry in God's people? Like, what makes us not cry out? What makes us be quiet? What makes us think, you know what? I'm just, I don't think I need to talk to, cry the Lord for help today. What makes that happen? And I, and I, I kind of see three. You maybe see more, uh, but they're, they're kind of big ones. Number one is what I'm just gonna call the world. The world makes us believe that it's foolishness to cry out to the Lord. And I know we're God's people, and gosh darn it, we have the word of God and the truth. But you would, it's so interesting to see like, how, how properness has infiltrated what we do. And I know people hate it when I talk about particulars, but like, I think sometimes we get so used to this. And I think there's power in a heartfelt, spirit-led cry of the Lord from my heart. But when I look at scriptures, when they were crying out, uh, they didn't really care who was watching. 
it was like, uh, you can watch me weep. You can watch me sit in my sackcloth. You can watch me rip my clothes open. I want the Lord. And the world would tell you, well, keep that tame and keep that to yourself. The world and its systems would say, crying out to God is of no use. So don't do it. But God's word tells us, no, our God is in heaven and he hears every word of prayer you pray. And he responds. Which is the fact that God would save us. That's grace, correct? The fact that God would give us his righteousness, his holiness, so we can come before him, that's grace. The fact that you can talk to him, that's grace. The fact that his spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in you, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That's mercy. And how much do we take that for granted? I do. I'm assuming you do. Unless you all were like, no, I cry out all the time. Middle of Walmart. Fire Lord! I got, maybe that's you. Maybe. I think the silencers of this crying out to the Lord uh, is the demonic, the Satan himself, the little accuser. Sounds like this to me. You can't cry out to him with what your life looked like this week. That's accusation. You know that, right? That moment where you're like, I have to get Jesus. And you get down, and you're like, Lord. And then that little voice, that little voice that tells you you're not worthy. He won't hear you. It's not going to work. What good will it do? That's not the Father. That's demonic. And so in those moments, I think we either listen to the voice of the accuser or we turn to a better word and we go, no, 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 no. I have great and precious promises purchased by the blood of Jesus. I'm going in and I'm going to talk to God and I'm going to tear down strongholds. It's going to be amazing and not in my power at all, but because I'm crying out to the right person at the right time in the right heart. Cry out! I'm, I'm amazed so often, uh, we, we run into this a lot, like marriages that are struggling, and we ask them, have you prayed? What? Have you prayed? Have you walked around every room of your house and declared and asked God to reign there? And I don't mean in like, I mean, I'm like, God, you have to do something or my marriage is going to not work. Have you, when your kids act up, have you laid hands on them and they're like, like squirming and declared and prayed and cried out that God would do a work in their heart? When business is bad, do you like, well, it's time to do some 24-hour no-nighters, no sleepers, figure this thing out, or do you cry out to God? We are the people that have God's ear. We are the people set apart and saved unto a relationship with God. We get to talk to him. It's the best news I can tell you. You get to talk to God, and the Bible says he hears you. And the Bible goes farther in Ephesians chapter 3. This isn't even in my notes to say that he can do exceedingly abundantly more than we can think or imagine. So take what you have in this scenario that you want to have happen when you pray. Now go past that. That's what God can do. Now go, yeah, actually, way past that. That's what God can do. So why are we not crying out? Well, I think the world's convinced us it doesn't work. I think the accuser is killing us right now in the church. And then ultimately, I, I think it comes down to a lot of times to a lack of faith. A lack of faith. What good will it do? And I've talked about this in the past, but if I, if I went to Anna at any point in time in our marriage and I went, I just don't expect a lot from you. Do you think that would hurt her? Like, I just don't, I don't think you're going to listen to me. I don't, I don't expect anything from you. And I feel like in many ways when we don't cry out, when we don't come and return to the Lord, that's what we're saying to him. We're being like, I, I just don't expect you to, to move. I don't expect you to take care of me. I don't expect you to hear me. I don't expect you to come through. And really, this is the heart level work I think some of us need to do. The reason the accuser can get that foothold in you is because 10 years ago, you asked for something hard. Like you asked for dad not to die from cancer. Hard. You asked for mom not to get sick. You asked, I mean, you asked for something and it was like, God, you have to do it. And it didn't happen. And therefore, you have a, a heart level wound 
a distrust that took place that you need to let God today be like, let's heal that so Satan can't keep poking it. So that you can return with joy and with faith to cry out to God with all that situ- we, Our world's sunk, bros, girls. I don't know, bros. <laughs> if we don't start crying out to God, if we don't start inquiring of the Lord, if we don't start taking seriously that it's not gonna be by our might or our ability to plan or our ability to get people in, it's gotta be by God's spirit and his movement and his hand. And the only way that happens is if we pray. And so I think there's two types of crying out that need to happen today. And I'm gonna try to end this. Number one, the Bible makes it really clear. All those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I know some of you are like, great, I get to pray and ask God for things. So Romans 10 says this, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And so I know there's someone in the room, you've been in church a long time, but you've never met Jesus. So before you get to a point where you're like, man, I'm gonna ask him for a bunch of stuff, the first stop is to meet him. The first stop is to encounter God through the man, Jesus Christ. And it's it's pretty simple. We don't come to God just to call on him for stuff. We call on the name of the Lord. And when it says all those who call on his name, they're, they're talking about calling on him in faith that he is the son of God. That he died my death, that I should die because of my sin and how I've treated God. I rejected God, but Jesus took my spot. And in that moment, the wrath of God, the punishment I deserved, my fine was paid. And in its place, Jesus died. And when he rose, he rose conquering sin and death and my punishment's gone. And now he offers, do you want righteousness and holiness and eternal life? And now taking that, I am not just getting a better life, I'm getting a new one. Jesus didn't come to like kind of fix you up, self-help you. He came to replace you, to give you a new heart that will love God with all that it is, to give you a new spirit that doesn't turn and reject the Lord. So you need Jesus today, and if you've never called on the name of the Lord, I I just, I wanted to start there. All those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I think it's a, a sad thing when churches don't preach the gospel. I think it's a sad thing when the people in it can't preach the gospel because they don't know it. And so it, 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 it comes down to this. I don't want anybody here when I see you in eternity, and we will all meet Jesus one day, even if you know him or not, and you will give an account. And I don't want you to look over to me and be like, why didn't he tell me? I'm telling you. You must come to Jesus, the living son of God, and give him your life and be born again. Without that, you will not see the kingdom of God. You won't see him. You can cry out. You can be like, ah! But he has told us what we need to do to be saved in his word. Call on the name of the Lord. And if you'd like to talk about that at the end of the day, I would love to talk about how Jesus wants to save you and make you new. The second point is for those that belong to Jesus. I think there's this, this statement over, like, that I heard the Lord say was just this, there's this righteous, holy cry from God's people that needs to erupt. Not to be reserved anymore. We're watching our generation, our world crumble, tear itself apart, and the world has seen to a large degree of what the church is offering, but it's never seen a righteous, holy people cry out with one accord. Every movement of God's people that has started with, we're going to gather together and we're going to cry out with one voice, with one, just, Lord, come and make a way, that's where revival hits. And so over and over again, Psalm 47 says, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Psalm 93, the Lord reigns. This is God's people crying out for him to make a difference and him to make a change. I'll give you an example. I think sometimes we walk 
we walk through our world and we see things that are not God's heart, that are not how God designed things to work. And so I take a lot of prayer walks these days and I'll walk by sororities or fraternities. I walked by, this is gonna sound like very judgmental, I walked by the Interfaith Center the other day and I, can I tell you what, like I had a physical reaction when I walked by the Interfaith Center. If you don't know what that is, it's a center up almost close to uptown and it's got like all the major world religions in one building. And it kind of paints the picture that they're all the same. So I'm walking and I'm praying and I see this place, the Interfaith Center, and I, I'm not hating on them, I mean, but I am a little bit. And I literally was like, Ugh. that was what I felt. And I began to pray, make that place go away, Lord. Make your name greater than that, God. Because you walk in that building and they'll tell you about Muhammad, they'll tell you about Krishna, and they'll tell you about Jesus all in the same breath. Or you walk by a fraternity and you see them drunkenly laying in the lawn and then playing beer pong. And this is what Christians have done for, eh. That, they either shrug our shoulders or we hit them with Bibles. Ah! Like this is our only things we do. And so I'll be walking by them and I'll start praying, God, I cry out that those men would encounter you, Lord. That even, I was pretty much drunk when I met Jesus. So like, I mean, God can do that, right? but why do we not cry out for it? Why are we so content with what's going on when we have a relationship with the God of everything? The, the ancient of days, you get to talk to him. The alpha, the beginning. The omega, the end. You get to sit with him. You get to encounter him. You get to talk to him. His spirit is in you. Which means when I see something in this world, in this culture, that should not be, that is demonic, I don't just go, I go, God, fix it. Make it what you want. Save them. And at the very least, if you're not with me on, on all the other stuff of like tearing down the interface center and all that stuff, at least we can agree that just this last second, 83 people died and they all went to hell. Are we not moved? Are we not tearful? Are we not, do we not believe the doctrines that we say we do? That there is an eternal hell? That there is eternal glory? And that Jesus is the only way into glory? So we should pray all the more fervently that our neighbors and our kids and our schools and our country and our people and the missionaries going out would faithfully preach the gospel of Jesus Christ because in the end of all things, that's all that matters. That's a different sermon. Whew. And so here's what I'll say as we land. I want to hear a holy cry rise out of this church. And I don't think it's a momentary thing. And I don't think it's a volume thing. So if you heard me today say it's about yelling, it's not about yelling. I just think sometimes I've been in here on Mondays, Monday through Friday weekly prayer. And I do think there's a physical volume that matches a spiritual cry sometimes though. You ever seen a mom whose kid's sick? Being a pastor, I have. And I have never once seen that woman, a mom with a kid that's sick, pray a tame prayer. It is a fearful, fierce thing. You know why? Her only hope is the Lord. And so she doesn't care if the pastor thinks it's inappropriate. I love moms that pray. I'm convinced the women in my life, the women of God in my life, are the reason God saved me the way that he did. Moms. Pray. Dads, pray. Old men, old women, pray. Teenagers, pray. I'm convinced if a group of teenagers would start praying for the schools of this area, they'll be encountered by the glory of God. We'll see revival here. We won't read about it over there. We'll read about it here. If we'll pray. If we'll cry out. If we won't reject. If we will... Oh, whew, and so here's a couple words that I just want to give to you before we step into this. Number one, Jesus is not a robot. He has emotions. He has a heart. There's things he likes and there's things he doesn't like. So before you come to him and you go, gimme, 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 make sure you're not participating actively in sin and things he died to free you from. And you're like, what's that? You just gave me this whole thing about crying out to the Lord. You need to cry out that the Spirit of God would come and cleanse you. That you would 
confess your sin, be freed of them, and then walk in the freedom that Jesus died to give you. We don't dabble in sin. Be holy as the Lord is holy. This is scripture. And so since he's not a robot, I think there's things that God likes and there's things that he dislikes. And I regularly go, God, have I opened my life up? Am I doing or participating actively or unknowingly in anything that you don't like? Lord, do you want me to get up at four in the morning tomorrow just to be with you? I will. If you like that, if you want that, in the middle of the night, God, if you want to shake me by your spirit to come spend time with you and to talk to you, I want that. In the same way, I think there's things that he likes. I think, you know, this is why we sing, in my opinion. We don't just sing for information for our brains, although our brains are important. We sing because they're connected to our hearts and our brains. God wants our hearts. He wants my heart. And if you were ever with me uh, completely alone in this room, you, I believe you would be embarrassed. I wouldn't be, but you might be. Because there's a lot of singing, and I can't sing. There's a lot of yelling, and it's not really like pretty yelling. It's pretty brutal. There's a lot of like skipping. You're like, skipping? There's just a lot of joy and relationship and pouring out my soul before God that he might move in this body. And here's my prayer for the day. It wouldn't be a cry out of me or the band or a couple prayer people or John or Jeremiah. It would be us as a people led by the Spirit of God to cry out to God for a move of the Lord. That A people means everybody in this room is invited to the throne room of grace and to cry out, all of us. No one's left behind. I believe the world hasn't seen this. I believe they've seen big bands, phasers, fog machines. I believe they've seen everything the bigger church broadly is trying to offer, but they have not seen a people wholly and consecrated to this one thing. We will cry out to the Lord until we see him in the land of the living. Psalm 57.2 is our last verse of the day. We're going to live it out here, actually. So as the band comes up, I just want you to prepare your hearts um, to cry out and to respond to the word of God. And I honestly felt like the Lord was like, don't rush. So we're just going to slow for a second, pray quietly, and see what God wants to do with his people. Because some of you need to release a holy cry that God would save your marriage, that God would save your kids, that God would move on this earth like no man or woman has ever seen. Some of us need to get on our faces and humbly be like, God, I repent for so little faith, for not crying out, for rejecting you, you saving me, me being restored, and then rejecting you and being caught. I want to be out of that, God. So Psalm 57, 2 says, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. I want you almost to try to commit that to memory. I cry out to God most high. I don't cry out to the internet for help. I don't ask other men or women for help. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. So like I said, I'm just going to sit you before the Lord. So if you could, just get in whatever position you want. Kneel, just sit right where you are, but close your eyes if you need to. We're just going to talk to God. So Lord, I, I know you said don't rush, so I just sit us as a people before you. trying to get into the songs or dismiss or do anything other than sit our lives all that we are before you the living God oh father we just read your word encourage you to engage the Lord in conversation right now. You, yourself, not me and for, for us, but you, for you. 
cry aloud, Lord, to the living God, who hears my cries, who saved my life from the pit, set my feet upon the rock. we're just going to do that. We're going we're gonna to cry out to the Lord. We're going to worship Him and intermingle that with prayer and praise and intercession and see where God takes us. I prayed that same prayer Wednesday night and I believe the Lord did it. And it's not always pretty because like we don't always understand it, but like when we ask God to give us His heart, sometimes that hurts and we cry and sometimes we laugh and sometimes we're overcome and sometimes it's peace and there's nothing. I want the Lord to put into me and to this body a cry from his spirit that would just shake the nation, shake the earth. Men don't produce it. You can't force it. So after I pray this prayer, I just encourage you, maybe it's all of a sudden you're flooded with love for your kids. Cry out for them. Or after we pray this, we say, God, give us your heart. Make us intercessors. Burden us for prayer. Put a cry in us that you feel this cry for the nations. And you're like, I need to cry. I need to yell that Zimbabwe would be saved. You go ahead. You go right on and yell. Others of you maybe, and this is what happened Wednesday, I felt like the Lord started laying this heart for the prodigals, people that are run away from the Lord to run home. And it was met with a lot of tears. So maybe you find yourself weeping that prodigals would come home. So with every heart turned to the Lord, eyes locked on Jesus, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to worship and respond. And I would say anywhere in the middle of all of this, there's going to be prayer people, ministers that have been trained by us to pray for you up here on the front left, right corners. Everything past this moment, there's no dismissal point. So if you need to leave, you go when you want. Everything past this moment is direct response to the Spirit of God, the Word of the Lord, and a love for, for the Father. So if you need to come up front and kneel, if you need to go walk, pace back and forth, I don't care. If the Lord tells you, you do what God says. fervent again where the fire the flame is burned down and it's just flickering would you blow it into a full force fire
Thank you for tuning into the message today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged by the gospel. If you need prayer for anything, please email us at prayer at cobblestonechurch.com. We love you. We're praying for you. Have a great week. God bless.